Part two, chapter nine of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter nine. Bilibin now found himself in the quality of a diplomatic chinovnik at the headquarters of the army, and though he wrote in French with French jests and phraseology, still he described the whole campaign with genuine Russian fearlessness, not sparing reproaches or sarcasms. He wrote that the discretion imposed upon him by the necessities of diplomacy annoyed him, and that he was glad to have in Prince Andre an ingenious correspondent to whom he was able to pour out all the spleen which had been accumulating in him at the sight of what was going on in the army. This letter was of somewhat ancient date, having been penned even before the battle of Prusik Eilau. Bilibin wrote as follows. Footnote. This letter is in French in the original. End footnote. Since our great success at Austerlitz, my dear prince, I have been, as you may know, constantly at headquarters. I have conceived a decided taste for war, and so much the better for me. What I have witnessed these past three months is beyond belief. I will begin ab ovo, at the very beginning. The enemy of the human race, as you are well aware, has been attacking the Prussians. The Prussians are our faithful allies who have only duped us three times within three years. Consequently, we take up their cause. But it proves that the enemy of the human race pays no attention to our fine speeches, and in accordance with his rough and untrained nature, flings himself on the Prussians without allowing them to finish their parade, in short meter beats them all hollow, le rosse pat couture, and makes himself at home in the palace at Potsdam. I have the most earnest desire, writes the King of Prussia, to Bonaparte, that your majesty should be received and treated in my palace as would be most agreeable to you and i hasten to take all measures to this end that circumstances permit i only hope that i have been successful the prussian generals make it a point of honour to be gracious toward the french and lay down their arms at the first summons the principal officer of the garrison of glugau with ten thousand men asks the king of prussia what he should do if he is called upon to surrender a fact in short, while hoping to make a great impression solely by our military attitude, lo and behold, here we are in for a real war, and what is worse, for a war on our own frontiers, avec et pour le roi de Prusse. Everything is all ready. We lack only one trifling thing, that is, a general-in-chief. As it has been discovered that the successes of Austerlitz might have been more decided, if only the general-in-chief had been older, all the octogenarians had been brought forward, and between Prozorovsky and Kamensky, the preference has been given to the latter. The general comes to us in a kibitka, after the style of Suvorov, and is received with acclamations of joy and triumph. On the fourth comes the first courier from Petersburg. The mail is brought in to the marshal's study, as he likes to do everything personally. I am summoned to help sort the letters, and take those addressed to ourselves. The marshal looks on while we work, and waits for the packages addressed to him. We search them over, but there is not one. The marshal becomes impatient, and sets to work himself, and finds letters from the emperor, for Count T, for Prince V, and others. Then, lo and behold, he goes off into one of his blue rages. He shoots fire and flames against everybody. He seizes the letters, breaks their seals, and reads those which the emperor has written to others. So that's the way I am treated. They have no confidence in me. Ah, 
that's a fine notion setting others to watch my actions away with you and he writes his famous order of the day to general benigson i am wounded and cannot ride on horseback and consequently cannot command the army you have taken your defeated corps d'armee to Pultusk. there it is exposed and lacks firewood and provender and as you yourself reported last evening to count Foxhofden, you must devise measures for retiring beyond our frontier see that this is done to-day owing to all my riding on horseback he writes to the emperor i have become galled by the saddle which in addition to my former infirmities entirely prevents me from riding on horseback and commanding such an extensive army and therefore i have transferred the command to count Buxhofden, who is next in seniority to myself giving him the whole charge and advising him in case he cannot obtain bread to move nearer to the interior of prussia since only enough bread is left for one day and some of the regiments have none at all according to the reports of the division commanders Ostermann and sedmoreski and the peasants also have nothing left and i myself shall remain in the hospital at ostrolenko until i am well in offering most respectfully this report i would add that if this army remain another fortnight in its present bouviac by spring there will not be a single soldier left permit an old man to retire to the country since he is now so feeble that he finds it impossible to fulfil the great and glorious duty for which he was chosen i shall await your all-gracious permission here in the hospital so as not to play the role of a clerk instead of commander at the head of the army of men like myself there are thousands in russia the marshal is vexed with the emperor and punishes all of us for it isn't that logical thus ends the first act in those that follow the interest and absurdity increase in proper degree after the marshal's departure it is discovered that we are in sight of the enemy and must fight buxhoveden is commander-general-in-chief by order of seniority but general benigson is not of this opinion all the more because it is he and his corps who are in sight of the enemy and he is anxious to profit by the occasion to fight a battle on his own account aus agony hunt as the germans say he does so this is the battle of potolsk which is reported to be a great victory but which in my opinion was no victory at all we civilians nous autres have as you are well aware a very wretched habit of making up our own minds in regard to the gain or loss of a battle the one who retires after the battle is the loser so we say and in this respect we lost the battle of potosk in short we retreated after the battle but we send a courier to petersburg to carry the news of the victory and the general refuses to surrender the chief command to buxhofden hoping to receive from petersburg the title general-in-chief as a reward for his victory during this interregnum we begin an excessively interesting and original scheme of manoeuvres our design consists not as it should have been in avoiding or attacking the enemy but solely of avoiding general buxhofden who by right of seniority should be our chief we pursue this plan with so much energy that even in crossing an unfordable river we burn our bridges to cut off the enemy who for the nonce is not bonaparte but buxhofden general buxhofden just misses being attacked and taken by overwhelming forces of the enemy by reason of one of our pretty manoeuvres which saves us from him buxhofden pursues us we sneak away as soon as he crosses to our side of the river we cross back again at last our enemy buxhofden catches up with us and attacks us the two generals have a quarrel buxhofden even goes so far as to send a challenge 
and Benixen has an attack of epilepsy. But at the critical moment, the courier who carried the news of our victory at Poltosk returns with our nomination as general-in-chief, and our enemy number one is done for. We can think of number two, Bonaparte. But what do you suppose? Just at this moment, there rises before us a third enemy. The Pravoslavnoye, the Orthodox army, loudly clamoring for bread, for meat, for sukari, for hay, and what not. The stores are empty, the roads impassable. The Pravoslavnoye set themselves to marauding, and in a way of which the last campaign would not give you the slightest notion. Half of the regiments formed themselves into freebooters, scouring the country and putting everything to fire and sword. The natives are ruined, root and branch, the hospitals are overflowing with sick, and famine is everywhere. Twice the headquarters have been attacked by troops of marauders, and the general-in-chief has himself been obliged to ask for a battalion to drive them off. In one of these attacks my empty trunk and my dressing-gown was carried off. The emperor has consented to grant all the division chiefs the right to shoot the marauders, but I very much fear that such a course would oblige one half of the army to shoot the other half. Prince Andrei at first read with his eyes alone, but gradually, in spite of himself, what he was reading, in spite of the fact that he was well aware of how far Biblim was to be trusted, began to absorb him more and more. Having read thus far, he crumpled up the letter and threw it aside. It was not what he had read in the letter that moved his indignation, but rather the fact that the life there, so remote and foreign to him now, had still the power to stir him. He closed his eyes, rubbed his forehead with his hand, as though to drive away all recollection of what he had been reading, and listened to what was going on in the nursery. Suddenly it seemed to him that he heard a strange sound there. A great fear came over him. He was afraid that something might have happened to his baby while he was reading the letter. He went to the nursery door on his tiptoes and opened it. As he went in, he noticed that the nurse, with a frightened face, was hiding something from him, and the Princess Maria was no longer by the cradle. "'My dear,' he heard behind him, in the frightened voice, as it seemed to him, of his sister. As often occurs after long wakefulness and keen emotion, a causeless panic came over him. He imagined that the child might be dying, or dead. All that he heard and saw now seemed to confirm this fear. "'It is all over,' he said to himself, and a cold sweat stood out on his brow. He went to the cradle in great apprehension, firmly convinced that he should find it empty, that the nurse-girl was hiding his dead baby. He drew the curtains aside, and it was some time before his frightened, wandering eyes could find the child. At last he saw him. The little one, all rosy, lay sprawled out across the cradle, with his head lower than the pillow, and he was smacking his lips in his sleep and breathing regularly. Prince Andrei was perfectly delighted to see the child so, when he was already beginning to think that he had lost him. He bent over and, as his sister had instructed him, felt with his lips whether the baby's fever had gone. The sweet brow was moist. He passed his hand over the little head, and the soft hair was also moist. The baby was in such a perspiration. Not only was the baby not dead, but he was aware now that the crisis had passed, and that he was better. He felt strong inclination to snatch up this helpless little creature and press it to his heart, but he dared not do so. He stood over him, looking at his head and his little arms and feet which had thrown off the coverings. He heard a rustling behind him, and thought he saw a shadow outlined on the curtain of the cradle. But he did not look around, but gazed into the baby's face, still listening to his regular breathing. 
the dark shadow was the princess maria who with noiseless steps came to the cradle lifted the curtain and dropped it after her prince andrei without looking around recognized her and stretched out his hand to her she pressed his hand he is in a perspiration said prince andrei i had gone out to tell you the baby stirred a little in his sleep smiled and rubbed his forehead against the pillow prince andrei looked at his sister the princess maria's lustrous eyes in the subdued twilight of the curtains gleamed more than usually bright with happy tears she leaned over to her brother and kissed him slightly catching her dress in the material of the curtain each made the other a warning gesture and stood quiet for a moment under the faint light of the curtain as though they wished still to remain in that world in which they were shut off from all the rest of the universe prince andrei was the first to move away from the cradle getting his head entangled in the muslin of the curtain as he did so yes that is all that is left for me now said he with a sigh End of chapter nine